Good day, and welcome to episode six of the Intangible Investor Podcast, brought to you by Knowledge Leaders Capital, where we discuss everything under the sun related to financial markets, economics, and innovation. This episode was recorded on December 18th, 2019. I'm Bryce Coward, Deputy Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager for Knowledge Leaders Capital, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Stephen Vanelli, the Chief Investment Officer and Chief Executive Officer of Knowledge Leaders Capital. Welcome everyone to the podcast. It's been a really busy few weeks of travel and the Thanksgiving holiday mixed in there. So we've been unable to record a podcast in a few weeks uh, now. Given that, I thought it'd be a great time to have Steve review what he's been looking at lately. And then after that, I'll jump in with some thoughts on a trend I've been following for some months now, which is foreign stocks outperforming U.S. stocks. So with that, Steve, what's been on your mind lately? So uh, Bryce, as you know, one of the things that, that we look at is our, our indicator called uh, uh, U.S. Treasury uh, growth expectations, where uh, we decompose the, the Treasury bond into its component pieces and, uh, and use that to infer what the Treasury market's uh, thinking about growth. And so uh, the growth expectation indicator is really easy. You basically take tips yields and you subtract from them. Um, what the term premium is, what the uh, ACM term premium is embedded in the 10-year in the bond. Of course, now the term premium is a negative number. So, you know, subtracting a negative has you adding. So, in fact, what the U.S. Treasury-derived growth expectations are um, uh, uh, tips yields um, plus the term premium. Um, so, with that said, um, over the last year, we've seen uh, U.S. Treasury embedded growth expectations um, fall. They peaked last December at around 1.6%, uh, and today uh, have broken down to 1.01%, uh, making a new low for the year. And when we decompose that, um, the, the preponderance of that decline for the year has been a drop in TIPS yields themselves. So over the last year, TIPS yields have gone from roughly uh, 1%. Uh, a year ago to about 13 basis points today. So they've dropped about 87 basis points. At the same time, the term premium has gone from negative 60 basis points to negative uh, 88 basis points. So it's actually, you know, in a, in a, in a strange mathematical way, helps support implied growth expectations with the term premium backing off a little bit here. So the net of all that is the, the uh, growth expectations are off about uh, 60 basis points over the last year. And um, there's lots of asset allocation uh, uh, work that we do around um, this indicator. And, and, and I think that's something we'll talk about in, in, in future podcasts. But for now, um, the, the, the backstory I guess I wanted to tell on it that I thought was interesting is that um, why it's plunged to new, to, to new lows uh, is really a function of uh, the retreat in the term premium in, in the last couple months. And that retreat really began uh, when you had the, uh, uh, the attack on the Saudi oil facility in, uh, in the middle of September. And so if we look at um, the, the money market related um, indicators of financial stress as part of the, the Bloomberg uh, financial conditions indicator, there's three of them. Um, so starting with the treasury to euro dollar spread, the TED spread, uh, you know, before the, the Saudi 
uh, oil attack, it was at about 15 basis points. It spiked to 35 basis points, you know, in, in, in the week after. It's really leveled off um, and actually peaked at 38 basis points a few days ago uh, and, and has, has come back down to under 35 basis points. So, you know, it suggests maybe that we've seen uh, the peak in funding strains that the Fed's emergency uh, actions, uh, the repos and, and other things um, have, have uh, um, uh, have had visible results in, inside the money markets. Next, we can look at the U.S. LIBOR to overnight index swap spread. Um, similarly, you know, it, it was around 30 basis points in September um, uh, uh, before the Saudi oil attack and, and jumped up to about 40 basis points uh, in, in the week after. It's since retreated back down to about 33 basis points. Uh, and then lastly is the three-month commercial paper to U.S. Uh, T-bill spread, which um, was about 15 basis points uh, on the day of the Saudi oil attack, and it uh, you know, rose out to a peak of about 35 basis points uh, a couple weeks ago. So the net of all that is that it appears that um, money market-related funding strains are, uh, are, are ebbing somewhat, which is good news because um, uh, you know, it, it, it can be these uh, funding strains that lead to, um, you know, variable performance in assets. And given that the epicenter of this funding strain was the repo market, the repurchase market, uh, the government bond market, it's probably not uh, a, a leap to connect the move up that we've seen in rates lately with some of these funding strains that we've seen. Um, but what we find in the long term, uh, when we look at a longer stretch of time, uh, what really seems to drive uh, the term premium um, uh, in the marketplace is is Fed activities, and so um, you know we went back uh, to 2013 and looked at um, that's when the data began, where the Fed gives us the terminal rate. So when the Fed has a a, a, a meeting, they'll you know give us uh, some data points, and one of them is you know what they see the terminal rate as um, uh, uh, out into the future. And so, you know, if we go back uh, to 2013, 2014, the terminal rate was around 4%, and then it started coming down, and it, it fell um, all the way down to about 2.875% uh, uh, by, by mid-2016. And so at the same time, that took the uh, real rate risk component of the term premium, you know, down from about 1.5% uh, uh, to flat. You then had a little period in, in, in at the end of 16, early 17, where the Fed um, increased its terminal rate estimate by about 12 basis points, uh, causing the term premium to, you know, to rise by, by a similar amount. Uh, but then it fell again into 17. Uh, and then you had another episode in, in 2018 where um, the Fed raised the terminal rate estimate by about 25 basis points, which caused the uh, term premium to you know to rise by a similar amount. Well, since then, since since last fall, uh, the terminal rate estimates fallen from three percent all the way down to two and a half percent, which has really served to support, uh, uh, which has really served to support the treasury market, uh, in particular the term premium. So, you know where we see these things right now with the Fed's terminal rate at two and a half percent, you know it suggests that. Uh, the real rate risk premium, which is the dominant component of, uh, of the entire term premium, 
you know, it should probably be closer to negative 1% from, from negative 66 basis points where it is right now. So, so our longer term work would suggest that uh, there's uh, potential for, 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 for downside in term premium from, term premium from here. Uh, and this is uh, particularly relevant when we look at the bond market, uh, the 10-year nominal treasury rates, for instance. Um, you know, you had a huge rally in 10-year treasuries uh, in the 14, 15, 16 period as the Fed was bringing down the terminal rate. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, they brought it down by about a percent and a quarter um, in that period of time. 10-year treasury rates fell from four to two and a half percent. And then at the end of 16, as I, as I mentioned earlier, they raised the terminal rate by about 12 basis points, uh, causing a bond sell-off. Uh, 10-year rates went from about one and a half uh, to, to about two and a half. But then in the middle of 17, they brought the terminal rate back down a little bit, which caused the bond market to rally by about 50 basis points from, from two and a half back down to two. But then as, as mentioned earlier, they, they, they tried to sneak the terminal rate back up there again in 18, uh, which caused a, another 100 basis point sell-off in, um, in, in, in treasury bonds. So, you know, if we look at from the low in the middle of 16 to uh, uh, the fall of 18, um, the Fed's terminal rate actually was unchanged, but uh, given the way that they moved it around, they, they, they caused 150 basis point, you know, uh, uh, peak to trough uh, sell-off in, in rates. And so uh, now that they've been reducing the terminal rate uh, again for the last year, uh, this has really been coincident with the big rally in, in treasury bonds that we've seen. And so, um, you know, to the extent that, uh, uh, to the extent that ten-year uh, Treasury bonds, you know, really stay within a somewhat contained range, it, it certainly wouldn't suggest that the Fed's about to uh, materially increase its terminal rate. Um, moreover, we just got a new a new dot plot from the Fed uh, a couple weeks ago, a week ago at their last meeting, and you know, when we look out there over the next few years, getting to that two and a half terminal rate um, really uh, is a function of about one hike uh, by the end of uh, 2021, one hike by the end of 2022, and one and a half hikes um, in the longer term. And all of that is to achieve their terminal rate. So that's to say that from here, in order for the Fed to achieve their terminal rate, um, they've got three and a half hikes to do uh, to engage in to, to get there. So, um, you know, the listener can judge for him or herself whether or not uh, that's a feasible scenario. So trying to wrap this all up, one of the things that we've noticed in our work is that um, this U.S. Treasury growth expectations, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, um, is very instructive when it comes to asset allocation. So for instance, uh, there's a real hand-in-glove fit between this U.S. Treasury growth expectation and the relative performance of uh, uh, of the S&P 500 to, um, uh, to tips, um, uh, to, to U.S. tips. And so um, given the divergence that we've seen now uh, for about a year where growth expectations, treasury embedded growth expectations have been falling while stocks have been outperforming bonds, um, we arrive at you know, one of, uh, of three possible conclusions. Um, uh, conclusion one, um, and this would be under the scenario that growth estimates recover, perhaps due to the you know, resolution of some of the trade war uh, um, elements with the phase one deal um, and, 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 and other um, uh, items, uh, uh, perhaps smoother transition in, in the UK. Um, 
uh, all those reasons, perhaps, uh, perhaps we see um, uh, tip shields rise significantly from here. You know, that would be one scenario that would close the gap uh, uh, between the relative performance of these two series. Um, alternatively, we could see the term premium retreat back, uh, back down towards, say, negative 130 basis points where it got a couple months ago when, when the Fed was really under pressure. Um, so, so both of those would be, you know, scenarios where uh, our growth estimate or growth expectation uh, embedded in the 10-year Treasury bond recovers. Um, the alternative scenario, if, if the Treasury market, um, you know, stays in, in the current configuration would suggest, um, you know, a relative underperformance of stocks versus uh, tips um, by about 20%. And so, you know, we throw that out there as, our, as those three scenarios. Again, either one, uh, tips yields rise significantly from here, two, uh, the term premium goes uh, deeper negative from here, or three, uh, we have a, a, a correction in the relative performance of, of stocks versus, versus tip yields. So um, with that said, um, uh, Bryce, you've had your eye on what uh, might be the beginning of a trend change in the relative outperformance of foreign stocks compared to U.S. stocks, can you give us a, um, an update on your thinking there? Uh, yes, Steve, and as and as uh, as always, very interesting uh, thoughts there on, on the, uh, the the tips market and, and that bigger macro story at play. Um, so another macro story that we've been following for for a little while now, maybe you know the, the last six months or so, is. Uh, uh, possibly what's the beginning of a, of a trend change um, in the relative performance of foreign stocks compared to uh, domestic uh, U.S. stocks. Um, so foreign stocks have actually underperformed the U.S. stocks in something like eight of the last 11 years. So this has been a pretty substantial and consistent period of underperformance for foreign stocks. So with that, it's, it's very easy for, for folks to, to look at you know, a slight uptick in, in the, the relative performance of, of foreign versus U.S. is um, just sort of a, a blip in an ongoing trend of, of U.S. Uh, equity dominance. But um, that, that indeed could be changing. Um, some of the things I'm looking at, not, not to oversimplify it, but, but really when we look at the relative performance differential between uh, U.S. stocks and let's say MSCI EFA stocks, we can really boil it down to, to just a couple of, of key macro variables. Um, the first one is money supply growth. The second one is economic growth prospects. And the third one is credit spreads. And for each of these, we tend to look at the, the relative um, differentials between, for example, money supply growth. So as opposed to just the, the, the overall level of money supply growth, which is of course important, uh, a better um, indicator of the relative performance of stocks between the two regions would be the relative money supply growth between the two regions. Um, so, so with that variable, money supply growth, uh, one of the things that we've been uh, keeping our eye on pretty much all year long is the uptick in, in the Eurozone money supply growth stats. So those have moved from about 6% all the way up to 8.4% uh, year over year, and this is looking at, at M1 money supply growth. Uh, by contrast, U.S. M1 money supply growth is uh, is running at about 7.1%. Now, it's up as, as well. Um, both series are actually moving higher, um, but, uh, but we've actually got um, foreign money supply growth, specifically Eurozone M1 uh, money supply growth, still growing at a more rapid rate 
than uh, than U.S. Uh, money supply growth, and that that suggests that um, uh, credit is being created at, at perhaps a, a faster clip in the eurozone. And um, and and with that, you know, we've seen uh, commensurate outperformance of eurozone equities um, in line with that uh, that additional credit creation since about um, since about September of, of this year, and uh, and we'll see if that trend continues. The other stat that I'd like to bring up is the uh, the relative growth dynamics between the two economies. So one of the ways that we can track the relative um, growth dynamics is simply by looking at at PMI data. And for this um, simple example, I'll, I'll use the the manufacturing uh, new orders component of the PMI data, and and I compare. Um, the data between the United States and, and Germany. And the reason that I use Germany um, is because, one, it's the, the growth driver out of the Eurozone. Uh, it's, it's the most important um, uh, economy in the Eurozone. And it's also a, a leading indicator of, uh, of Eurozone uh, growth. So when we look at the new orders component for the German manufacturing PMI, it of course um, is running well below 50, just at, at 46.3%, uh, excuse me, 46.3. Um, but that's actually the same level it was at back in March uh, of this year. Um, so back in March of this year, the US PMI was, was well over 50, that, that new orders component um, at about 52 and a half. And now that US new orders PMI is down to 47.2. So we've actually seen um, uh, what you might call a stabilization in the German new orders component, but a continued deterioration in US new orders. And this, of course, um, uh, has coincided very nicely with this um, recent pickup we've seen in foreign equity um, outperformance relative to domestic stocks. And the final thing I'll touch on here is credit spreads. Um, and specifically those credit spreads for the, the riskiest uh, issuers, issuers out there, which of course is the, the high yield space. So um, it, it's actually not uncommon for credit spreads in the Euro area to be uh, tighter than, than credit spreads in the United States. Um, one reason for that could simply be um, uh, ECB, um, uh, intervention in, in the bond markets in, in Europe to a greater extent than um, the Fed intervention in the domestic bond market in the United States. Um, but, but regardless, uh, what we've seen recently is um, on a relative basis, um, credit spreads out of the United States have actually um, they've stabilized, but credit spreads out of the euro area have actually come in a little bit. So on a relative basis, we're seeing um, a bit wider spreads out of um, uh, US high yield issue, issuers relative to European high, high yield issuers. And that, um, uh, that phenomenon has, has also coincided with um, uh, foreign equity outperformance over the last couple of months. So I think when we put this all together, you know, we don't need to predict the future, we just need to adapt to the trends that we're seeing. And by these three um, uh, you know, very simple uh, indicators of, of the macro economy, uh, again, money supply, um, relative, uh, relative growth prospects, and again, for that, we're using uh, PMI new orders and, uh, and credit spreads. What we're seeing is, is a relative improvement um, between those things, uh, between the Eurozone and 
and the United States, which of course has, has supported this, uh, this period of, of foreign equity outperformance. Now, the interesting thing with that is um, U.S. investors appear to be dramatically underweight foreign equities. And again, because foreign equities have underperformed um, so consistently and for such a, such a long period of time, this really isn't a surprise. But the degree of overweight um, to the U.S. may be a surprise. And in fact, when I add up all of the ETF assets that have a, a U.S. equity focus, that comprises about 85% of total equity ETF assets. So that means only about 50% of ETF assets um, are allocated to internationally focused funds. So now let's compare that to um, a standard benchmark, the MSCI World Index. So the MSCI World has a, a US to foreign breakdown of about 60-40. So that means uh, U.S. investors, by their ETF allocations, um, are underweight foreign markets by about 25%. So if we get a period, uh, for example, in 2020, if this, if this recent trend continues, in which foreign equities outperform by, by a lot, U.S. equity investors really are going um, to underperform um, a, a global benchmark. They're not going to participate to the extent that they may um, uh, because of these allocations are so uh, so offsides relative to the uh, developed market benchmark. So, um, you know, those are all things we'll be keeping our eye on as, as things go into, into 2020, and uh, we'll certainly be giving an update on that um, as things change. Great. Very interesting, Bryce. Thanks for sharing that. Absolutely. So uh, with that, we'll conclude today's podcast. Thank you all for listening to The Intangible Investor, and please come visit us at www.knowledgeleaderscapital.com to learn about our products and our unique way of investing in global financial markets. Please also send us your comments and feedback by emailing us at info at klcapital.com. Until next time, this is Bryce Coward and Stephen Benelli signing off and wishing everyone a happy holiday season.